Hi, I'm Billy Shore. Welcome to Add Passion and Stir. Here in Washington, D.C. today with Lauren Beals, the executive director and founder of D.C. Greens. We're going to hear about that in a moment. Uh, Lauren, thanks so much for being with us. It's a, it's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Really glad to have you. And uh, on the phone from Toledo, Ohio, Barb Petey, who is not only with ProMedica as their chief uh, advocacy and government relations uh, officer, but uh, the executive director of the Root Cause Coalition, which is a sponsor of Add Passion and Stir and of this episode as well. So Thanks so much for being with us, Barb. Thanks, Billy. Thanks for having me. I'm thrilled to have the two of you and particularly to find out just moments ago that you actually know each other. Let's start by just telling us how you how, how do you guys know each other? How far back do you go? Sure. Well, you know, I think Barb and I first met on a panel talking about um, about the connection between hunger and health at a at a frat conference. Is that right? That's am, am right. I, that's yes. right. And I think, you know, it was really before the Root Cause Coalition had gotten started. And it was in the early days of um, D.C. Green's running a, a produce prescription program in the district. And, you know, I think we we really found a lot of common cause in the process of, of speaking on this panel and, and sort of have kept up with each other ever since. Right. Well, let's start at the beginning of both. Let's start with you, Lauren, in terms of where DC Greens started. I know that some of it had to do with uh, just kind of the personal connection you felt, I think, particularly when you had a, your young son um, and what kind of food system he was going to grow up in. Uh, so I'd love to hear you talk about what motivated you to start DC Greens, and then we'll talk a little bit more about what it's doing today, but also, uh, Barb, the important work you do around uh, hunger and health and the social determinants of health which not everybody understands, so I'm going to ask you to explain, Barb. But let's start with you, Lauren. Sure. Um, you know, in a lot of ways, I got started in a, something of a cliche. I mean, I, I read The Omnivore's Dilemma about a decade ago, just like this everyone Michael else. Pollan's Michael book. Pollan's, you know, seminal yep. piece. And yep. I think, you know, I um, have but a background you, in anthropology. I did not have previously have a background in food and I was working at Sesame Street at the time. Um, You're a producer at Sesame Street? I was or? overseeing some of the educational content for yeah. international programs. Okay. Um, and why did you read Michael Pollan's book in the first place? You know, honestly, I was commuting up to New York and I grabbed it at Penn Station, I think. Okay. It was, I needed something to read on the train ride and it was prominently displayed. Yep. It, it was it was sort of accidental in that way. Um, and I think after reading that book, I was so stunned by how much I wasn't aware of mm. as a yep. highly educated, engaged person who thinks about culture and thinks about socialization. And, you know, um, I had that experience of sort of feeling the wool being pulled off of my eyes. And uh, it, it really made me feel as though, you know, if, if I, you know, someone with so much educational privilege um, is completely unaware of what's happening in the food system, and there are so many ways that this food system is broken, how are we ever going to fix this if we don't sort of roll up our hands and also make sure that everyone has that same access to uh, education and opportunity to shift the system? So th that was really one of the early motivators for, for us. Uh, but uh, but then what did you do? I mean, you read the what book. What I did was I was going on maternity leave from from uh, from Sesame Street. I just had my son. And I Your first child. My first yep. child. And um, I said, you know what? I'm going to start a farmer's market in my neighborhood. You know, that we're just going to start there. How hard could that be? And so, you know, I skipped. <laughs> Every time he napped, I was sort of getting this up and running. And um, I had a co-founder who was a teacher at uh, Bancroft Elementary School, which mm -hmm. was the first school that was invited to plant the first White House garden. 
And, you know, simultaneously, she this was uh, invited by Michelle Obama. That's when right. They were doing that's the White right. House garden. The, the yep. very first uh, groundbreaking. Yep. And um, there was a lot of attention on her um, because, you know, people were saying, well, that's great. You know, she's bringing a school to plant the White House garden. What's really happening at the school that she invited? And what my co-founder, Sarah Hallway, um, was really able to say was, you know, there isn't enough support for teachers at these schools. Um, and we really need to be investing in, you know, making sure that there's professional development for teachers, that people can use the gardens that are being put in. So, you know, we were sort of working uh, in different silos within the city. She was uh, meeting with folks in the school garden community, and I started meeting with the D.C. Farmers Market Collaborative and realizing that there were all of these ways that um, people wanted to be collaborating in the city and wanted to be working together, but no one was really focused on that work of collaboration. Um, And so we just started raising our hands and doing that work. Um, And DC Greens is an organization that uses the levers of food education, food access, and food policy to advance food justice in the nation's capital. We're really focused on DC as a city, and um, we're focused on systems level solutions. So, um, you know, what we do is we we work across sectors. So, with healthcare providers, with schools, with city agencies, with farmers with teachers um, to, to make sure that we're synchronizing the solutions across these different silos and looking for policy solutions and, and really city appropriations that are going to help move this conversation forward. So, Barb, this must be music to your ears. Um, this is it so is. much about what you represent and are encouraging around the country. Talk a little bit about both uh, ProMedica's commitment to this, and we've had Randy Ooster, the CEO, on this uh, podcast, um, but also what led to the Root Cause Coalition. Sure. Thank you. And it, again, it's just great to be on with Lauren. And, and I really look at Lauren as one of the individuals who inspired me and our organization to continue to go forward, because I, I think as we listen to Lauren's story and how she got into her space, it really is kind of a moment that you think, okay, wait, we should be doing more. And so you mentioned that I am with ProMedica, which is a health system based in Toledo, and we serve Northwest Ohio and Southeast Michigan, and we're a mission-based healthcare organization. And so in my role, it takes us outside of the four walls of the hospital or the physician's offices, and what are we doing in communities, and how are we making sure that we are partnering with the appropriate organizations, and we're really helping to meet our mission of improving health and well-being for every individual. And 80% of what goes into a person's health happens in the environment. It's the environment they live in. It's what they have access to. And as were many and and most healthcare organizations many years ago working on obesity and how to combat the obesity epidemic, we had developed some programs and education tools to take out into schools and to adult populations. And one of the things we did with schools was teaching about the food pyramid and the appropriate amount of exercise and screen time. And we did companion pieces for the adults and the kids' lives. And um, we did a train-the-trainer session so that the teachers wouldn't have to be the ones implementing this this lesson. And our trainers would come back and they would say, you know, it's not a matter of these kids not wanting to eat the right thing. They're hungry. They don't have access to food. And we're like, what are you talking about? And this is at the height of the economic downturn in 2008-2009. And we started peeling back the layers of the onion in our own community and seeing that um, the number of individuals and families seeking assistance where they had never before was really going through the roof. So again, the more we started looking at this issue, the more we thought we need to get our own industry involved in this. 
And so we had done some work with the Alliance to End Hunger, which is an NGO, as you know, based in D.C. And we did a a hunger summit on Capitol Hill in February of 2014, in which we brought together legislators and healthcare leaders and not-for-profits, faith-based organizations, and and started talking about how we need to engage the healthcare industry in addressing hunger as a health issue, because the cost to healthcare is about 130. billion, with a B, annually to health outcomes. And so while there's this ongoing debate about health care and what we need and what it should be and what it should look like, should we not be investing more at the front end as opposed to paying at the back end? And how do we more purposefully and thoughtfully engage the healthcare industry in this work? And it was really as a result of that meeting up on the Hill with 150 or so people gathered that um, the AARP Foundation said, you know, this was a phenomenal uh, event. They were they were there present that day, and they said, we need to take this further. We need to really form a coalition in which healthcare can be the lead, but not the only organizations, and that's how Root Cause Coalition came to be about uh, a little less than two years later. We established Root Cause Coalition in the fall of 2016, and we are now 38 members strong. And we work to address hunger as a health issue and other social determinants, which is a really fancy name for basic needs. So it's hunger, housing, transportation, isolation. And um, the two founding partners obviously had a very solid commitment to getting this off the ground, but it's really been the partners who have come to the table since then that have validated the need for this type of voice and this work to be um, throughout the nation and really lift up the needs um, the most basic needs of so many of our citizens across this country and how health outcomes and then consequently health outcomes leading to life outcomes can be altered for the better when we address the most root causes of health. And Barb, as you talk about the importance of dealing with all these issues, you know, I I certainly sit here thinking, you know, absolutely that's the right thing to do across the board. But you're also saying that, um, for the healthcare industry, this is the smart thing to do from a business point of view. There are literally billions of dollars uh, at stake here, either as a, you know expense or other long-term costs. Absolutely. So this is where um, you know the right thing to do meets the bottom line, and that may sound crass a bit, but it's it's very true. And we do have runaway costs. We have a system that needs to be, you know, refined. I I think that we can all agree on that. But I think one of the things that we miss, and I believe Randy Oster shared this with you when he was on the podcast a few months back, is we've got a system that isn't looking at the root causes of why people are having some of these issues and why these chronic conditions continue to, you know, exacerbate and, and not be addressed. You take just a very simple example of a prescription bottle that may say, take with food. Did anybody ever stop to ask that patient, do you have food at home? Do you have a refrigerator that this, um, you know, medicine needs to be kept in? There is an example that I use very often to show the importance of just, again, looking at some of the most basic things in an individual's life. We had a, a patient come to our food pharmacy last summer, very, very hot day, middle of July, Uh, her power was going to be turned off the next day, and she was there to get a prescription filled, a prescription of food, and she's also diabetic. And she was distraught about the fact that the electricity was about to be turned off, grateful for the, the food that she was able to get at the food pharmacy, but obviously had a bigger concern with the electricity being shut off because she's on an 
on insulin. Insulin needs to be refrigerated. And so we were able to work with our um, local her local utilities and make sure that the power wasn't shut off and make sure that she got on a program where she could get some assistance for that and get her back on her feet. Working with a dietitian on on her nutritional needs, but also some of these other most basic needs that are all connected. So we can work on nutrition, but we also have to look at all the other components that go into that individual's life as well. And, you know, Barb, I, um, you know, I couldn't agree more that, you know, and, and you've been really a leader in uh, making sure that the industry understands that there's a business case behind this, because I think, um, you know, so frequently what's happened is that um, hospitals and health systems have been looking at their sort of community benefit reporting dollars, which are really their charitable dollars, yeah. and, and been putting those kinds of dollars toward social determinants of health, which really buckets them away from making them core to the business model. And, um, you know, one thing that we've found in D.C., um, as I mentioned, you know, we've been running this produce prescription program for five years now in in the district, and doctors collect health metrics um, over the course of the program. So, you know, what what we've found is about half of the patients have a, you know, decrease in their body mass index. You know, we're seeing controlled hemoglobin levels. But what is... um, been the most exciting and compelling piece of data is that we're seeing a 61% increase in patient visits. So, you know, the food is a very uh, tangible reason to go and see your doctor. And when they're coming in to see their doctor, they're able to have all of the you know, the benefits that, um, you know, seeing a doctor will give you. Also, the clinics are able to bill for visits. And it, truthfully, you know, they're able to um, increase their uh, compliance with preventative care visits. And so we've started to think about um, the prescription program really as a, you know, I, I joke that it's a literal carrot to go and see your doctor, um, but it's very effective in that way. And, you know, that has been a, helped us make a very compelling case for you know, this fiscal year returns for, you know, Medicaid providers that might want to be able to fund this because, you know, they're seeing that retention rate as a, you know, potential for ER diversion um, to, you know, bring down some also to help them meet the value based care um, requirements that are being put down by, you know, by healthcare finance. So I, I think that has really been, I think, a, a pivotal and and key shift that we're really trying to push overall. Because, you know, we're animals. Humans are animals. You know, food is not a luxury. And I think as we're getting these connections um, to sort of what quality food does in terms of your life expectancy, it's clear that, you know, we need to be expecting cities to take this seriously as a cities and, and the business community. And that's why I applaud what Barb has done in the in the health community. I mean, I think I point to it almost everywhere that I speak. You know, anyone that doesn't know about the Root Cause Coalition, I'm pointing them towards you, Barb, because um, I think that you have been such a, a key pioneer and ally in, in this work for, for, you know, for folks across the country. Well, let me ask you, uh, Lauren, to take uh, see if we can take the go from the kind of the policy to the personal. Mm-hmm. Uh, we we're just listening to Barb speak of a um, a, a client, a patient who had uh, diabetic issues and needed more than just, you know, what you'd get uh, from food. You know, there were other, there were electricity needs and so forth, uh, insulin needs. Uh, can you describe for us a, a kind of 
follow the thread to some of the work that DC Greens has done to a, a family or a school or a community, how it's actually impacted them? How does it translate when you get to the very other end of the kind of the, the pipeline in terms of how people are receiving your services? Oh, sure. I mean, you know, one thing that we really pride ourselves on is, um, you know, we make sure that the programs that we run are really run together with folks that have a lived experience of food insecurity. So, um, you know, all of the programs that we run, and and I I should say, we're a bit of a strange organization in that we have direct service components, but they are generally incubation sites for uh, systems level shift. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, I... uh, we sort of straddle that policy yep. advocacy and and direct service which i think gives us a you know very clear picture of what what needs to change on the ground um so in terms of the you know the prescription program um there's also a sister program that we run called the produce plus program um which uh, is a, a, a food incentive program at farmers markets also. Um, I'm sure you've heard of matching programs across the country. Yep. This program actually is not a matching program. Um, this program is anybody who is on Medicaid or who receives SNAP, WIC, TANF, SSI, disability, really any federal benefit, can go to any of the 53 farmers markets in the city and they automatically get $10 to spend on fruits and vegetables two times a week. And so one of the things that we've seen from that program is enormous lines of people waiting to get this this benefit. I mean, you know, I think in D.C., the sort of myth that poor people don't want fruits and vegetables has been effectively destroyed because, you know, at every market in the city, we have lines, you know, 200 deep of people waiting to get $10 to spend on fruits and vegetables. Um, and what we have also done is um, we run this program together with a farmer's market brigade, which is about 300 volunteers, and 40% of our farmer's market brigade are actually Produce Plus customers themselves. And, you know, we've hired market champions from the community to be at the market to spread the word about the market. And I think, you know, from the personal level, not only are we seeing, you know, people saying things to us like, I mean, Miss Beatrice comes to mind, uh, who's one of our community champions. And, you know, she says to me, I'm a cook. And I, you know, I want to be able to cook for my neighbors, for my kids, for my grandkids. And, you know, I, I, when I have Produce Plus dollars, when I have this money, I'm actually able to make enough to be able to share with neighbors. I mean, you know, and I, I feel like, you know, you see the, the benefit of the program, you know, in terms of the health metrics that I mentioned, but there's a, a much more, um, I think subtle component, which is about dignity. There's a sense of community ownership of the program. There's a sense of, um, you know, these market spaces being community spaces. There's the freedom to try a new vegetable, um, which I think when you're using very, very limited dollars, you don't feel that you have the freedom to do. You know, we have people who say, and this is a classic thing, you know, um, anyone who has young kids knows you give them something to eat, and they spit it out. Yes. And it takes about 10, right. 10 right. tries before they actually want to eat it. Well, you know, if you have a very limited budget, the chances that you are going to buy again that piece of broccoli that your child spit out are very, very low. When you have a little bit of extra cushion. Okay, a little space. A little bit yep. of space. And I, I you know, I, even, you know, Miss Beatrice said to me, I love, she, she said, I love those Asian pears. They're so juicy. They're so good. 
And when I have produce plus dollars, I feel that I can give myself, you know, that extra pair. And I, I think that we undercount what that does to people's uh, sense of self, sense of community, mm-hmm. uh, the, the dignity that can go along with this. And, and I mean, that is a social determinant of health. You know, feeling that you have agency in the world and feeling that you are a valued member of the world. So, so Barb, uh, it seems to me that, um, you know, as we listen to these kind of personal stories, one of the things that that, that is embedded in the Root Cause Coalition and that the big opportunity here is to help connect all of these issues. Because what I find over and over again, our experience at Share Our Strength, we were very focused. I was in Richmond for the last two days uh, meeting with... uh, parents, principals, educators, the governor, and we're talking about, you know, making sure kids get uh, a healthy breakfast when they come to school. And one of the things that the principal of the school did is spoke to us about so many of the other issues that are impacting these kids before they ever get to the classroom and get our breakfast. And it's families that have a whole range of issues from health problems to some drug addiction issues, families who have lost their employment, families where there's uh, violence in the home. And, you know, it, it was one of those moments that kind of made my head hurt because we've got a pretty straightforward formula for, you know, getting kids a school breakfast without really thinking about all of the other issues. And and I guess what I love about the Root Cause Coalition and the idea of focusing on root causes is implicit in that is that you're going to treat all of these in a more integrated way. That's exactly right. And, and Share Our Strength, as you know, Billy, is a partner and a member of the Root Cause Coalition, and we, we couldn't be more grateful for that. And we need the focus, and we also need to be able to look at the view from 10,000 feet because all these issues are interconnected. And I think you hit the nail on the head. There needs to be a group focusing on that school breakfast or the school lunch, but there also needs to be awareness of what might have come before and what may be happening afterwards. So is it a safe neighborhood or a safe way to school? What's happening in that home before the child even leaves? Um, you know, there are so many different issues. Transportation is a huge issue. It's a huge barrier for people to be able to get and or maintain employment. If you can't get to work on time consistently, you can't hold down that job. So we need to look at all these interrelated issues and how they affect overall health and well-being. And that's what I love about the coalition is we have our members now who are bringing solutions. These aren't organizations that are thinking about delving into these areas. These are organizations that understand why they must, and we can share how they are working on solutions and then share them across the country with our different partners and, and groups that we work with. Well, that's what I wanted to ask you about, Barb, is how do you, how do you reach a larger audience now with the work of the Root, Co- Root Cause Coalition, and what are some of the kind of the top priorities that you're, you're trying to, to get to that larger audience? Sure. So the coalition uh, was founded with three main areas, if you will, research, education, and advocacy. And from an education standpoint, we're just about to have our second national summit on the social determinants of health that's taking place in Louisville next month, uh, October 9th and 10th. And there's still time for people to register if they want to go to our website, rootcausecoalition.org. It's a two-day summit that is going to address all of these varying social determinants topics from transportation to hunger, uh, food insecurity, nutrition, isolation from uh, very different perspectives, 
anchor institutions? What are different organizations and communities that are embedded in those communities? They're not ever leaving. They're part of the fabric of the community. What's their role? You know, Lauren talked about the cholera moment, and I think that's a great way to put it. Hospitals in this country really were established based on public health needs of the day, especially in what are now our major metro areas. We had public health issues, and so a need was addressed and hospitals were established, and and all that has come from that has been absolutely amazing and we're the envy of the world and what we can do to address uh, critical health needs. But at the base, at the root of every individual, are those basic needs that need to be met. And we see how it really affects health outcomes for certain, but how it affects life outcomes for individuals. If a child can't sit in school and pay attention to what's going on at the front of the classroom because they are weak from nutrition or scared about the walk home or afraid of a host of other issues that are going on in their world, then they're never going to be successful and we'll continue to build as many prisons as we're building schools. And that's not what we can do as a country. And so... Given, Barb, given that there is a host of needs, like you said, is there, mm-hmm. you know, is there kind of a leading indicator that you look for? Is that in terms of cause and effect, there's so many different things that could be measured. You mentioned A1C levels. I don't even know exactly what those are, so I'm hoping you'll tell me. Uh, but, you know, what what should we think of as a potentially leading indicator for whether these health inputs are making a, a difference in people's lives? Well, and I think that's where the research really has to come into play. So the A1C is is related to uh, diabetes. And so it's it's those basic levels, again, the, the high blood pressure, the diabetes, the, you know, overweight. We need to be looking at those things. And we're asking a lot of questions to patients now as a, as a healthcare industry. Um, ProMedica is doing a pilot study with its patients. Um, it started out in a relatively controlled group, and we're expanding that across our system to different physicians' offices. And we started out by asking two questions to address food insecurity and to determine if the individual um, was experiencing food insecurity. Now we're asking a series of questions in 10 different domains that range from financial stability to food insecurity to transportation, housing, um, even personal safety, domestic violence, um, and, you know, things that happen in, in school, in their neighborhood, and workplace security. So I think one of the leading indicators for us continues to be um, access to food and, and nutrition. And for healthcare, it's such a logical place to start because, again, you go back to uh, from a, a child being in the womb to infancy and the critical um, need for individuals to be nourished to thrive. Um, we were talking about before we got on air, you know, how, how quickly our, our kids have grown up. And I think we all remember, uh, us moms remember those first few weeks of infancy and just wanting to make sure that we're doing it right and our, our kids, our baby is getting enough to, you know, fill their belly so that they can sleep a few hours and we can catch up on our sleep. But can you imagine, and I think we can because we're in this space, but Im- imagine daily wondering how your kid's going to get through the next day or how you're going to get through the next day knowing your kid doesn't have enough food in their stomach. It impedes everything in their life and in yours. And you start to talk about the connectivity to mental health and what happens to mental health and stability when you can't meet the basic needs of your family or yourself. And you start to understand how we've got these issues that are literally tsunamis in our industry and overtaking um, our nation. 
and how the mental health issues start to relate to the opiate addiction crisis that we're experiencing. And so while we need the organizations that focus individually on these issues, Root Cause has come together to say, let's make sure we've got our arms around all these collectively because we can't segment an individual to say, we're going to address this now and someone else will have to address that. We need to address all these things because all these things make up you as a human being. Lauren? Yeah, I I mean, I wanted to pick up on a couple of things you were talking about there. Um, you know, one, I think that, you know, the increased prevalence of um, clinics and hospitals um, asking the, the food security screener, you know, that's something that has started to be picked up, you know, a- across the field um, and has been a very exciting development. One of the things that we've seen in D.C. and I'm sure is happening across the country is that, you know, the clinicians who are asking this food security screener, you know, do you have enough food? Are there times in in a period of time that you, uh, you know, that you are worried that you're not going to have enough food? When they, when someone screams positive for food insecurity, the doctors have no way of helping. And it has been extremely um, uncomfortable, I think, for for many clinicians. While it's a, you know, uh, such an important shift and, 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 you know, centering food security as an issue. And, And one of the things that I have been really excited about with the prescription program and that we hear from doctors is that it actually gives them a way to help their food insecure patients follow their medical advice. And, you know, we are now um, on the verge of of launching a pilot with Giant Foods, which would be um, they, they are the only grocery store located in, in that Ward 8 community that I mentioned where, uh, you know, folks that are screening positive for food insecurity would be sent to Giant Foods with a prescription to be able to redeem at this brick and mortar location. So, um, you know, I, I do think that the advances in um, what we understand to be root causes and the the embedding them into the clinical setting is such an important first step. But we also have to remember that, you know, there needs to be a, a solution that also goes along with that. Um, the other thing that I just wanted to pick up on, and, you know, you mentioned mental health. I, I happen to be married to uh, Dr. Matt Beal, who's the head of um, child and adolescent psychiatry at Georgetown. Um, and so they have been involved in a, you know, a number of projects, uh, again, to, to basically, you know, try to address exactly what you're talking about. I mean, I think that the data shows that um, from ages zero to five, um, toxic stress has the ability to actually change the the brain structure yes. of children. Yeah. And so, I mean, I think... Literally the physiology and the, the physiology, architecture of the brain. Exactly, making yeah. it impossible to... Um, to ever sort of recover from that. And so, uh, you know, recognizing, you know, that whole slate of, of, um, of issues that, that Barb mentioned, toxic stress is created by so many different components yes. on, on, on families' lives. Lauren, tell us, before we have to close up here, because time is flying uh, in this conversation, um, where does D.C. Greens go next? Um, you've got um, more work to do in the city. I'm sure there's lots of other places that are asking you, to, how do they replicate what you're doing? Yeah. What's the future ambition for You know, we, we really are uh, very invested in, in getting it right in D.C. as a city. I think that, you know, we see D.C., again, as a city, not as sort of a seat of national power, no. um, as a place where you can actually, you can actually fix these problems. It's, it's small enough 
It is, uh, you know, the folks that are focused on D.C., where it's really a very small village here. It's incredibly progressive. We've been able to uh, work together with the city to make huge investments and pass incredibly progressive legislation. Um, you know, and I, I feel like we're very invested in making sure that these problems are fixed in the nation's capital. Um, I think we've certainly talked about, you know, Chicago Greens or Charlotte Greens. But, you know, the, the truth is that we are best um, we are best replicated in sort of ironically in a place where there's a, a great density of organizations that are, are working on the issue. Yep, yep. And, you know, what we really are here to do is synchronize, work across sectors and again, do that work of collaboration. So, you know, I, I think we never want to be an organization that's just dropping into a community. Um, and I think, you know, as we think about expansion into the future, you know, making sure that we're sharing out what's worked here with organizations that are on the ground is really probably the direction we'll go. Um, the best way for people to find information about DC Greens is just dcgreens.org? Absolutely. Okay. That's the website. Yes. Uh, we've been talking to Lauren Beal, the executive director and co-founder of DC Greens. Thanks for being here. Thank you. And Barb Petey, uh, same for Root Cause Coalition. Um, Root Cause rootcausecoalition.org Well, thank you for being on the podcast, Barb. Thanks for the Root Cause Coalition being a sponsor of Ad Passion and Stir. Get closer to the problems that you care about. There's a famous photographer named Robert Kappa who once said, if your pictures are not good enough, you're not close enough. Well, in the social change space, getting close, bearing witness, going into the community, working with people directly, getting an understanding of what they need, that's often the precursor to really powerful transformational change. Don't just post, don't just preach. Get your hands dirty and get involved. Add Passion and Stir is distributed by District Productive. Our senior producer is Carrie Thompson. Our executive producer is Peter Ogburn. Add Passion and Stir is the creation of Billy Shore, Debbie Shore, and Paul Woody Woodhull. I'm Billy Shore. You're listening to Add Passion and Stir from Share Our Strength.